Welcome to the Celebrity Estates Wills of the Rich and Famous podcast. In this podcast, we break down high-profile celebrity estate planning cases for advisors and their clients. Most celebrity estate catastrophes are based on the same issues that everyday people face, just with the volume turned up. Our goal is to identify and extract the individual estate planning issues that lie at the heart of each story. We then discuss what advisors should expect and how to avoid common pitfalls. Hosted by WealthManagement.com Senior Editor David Lenock. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the latest episode of WealthManagement.com's Celebrity Estates, Wells of the Rich and Famous. For anyone new to the podcast, in each installment, myself and a guest take on a different celebrity estate and attempt to extract some key lessons that planners can apply to their more traditional clients. The idea being that celebrity estate planning stories, although often ridiculous in their details, generally have at their cores very basic issues that can just as easily apply to non-famous or fabulously wealthy clients. Our guest this week is Dr. Denise Federer. She's the owner and founder of Federer Performance Management Group, LLC in Tampa, Florida. She uses her extensive cognitive behavioral training and expertise in stress management, health and welfare issues, different communication styles, performance enhancement, and motivational strategies for behavioral change in her coaching and consulting work with individuals, teams, and corporations. As a natural outgrowth of her interests, Dr. Federer is an expert in the unique dynamics of closely held and family businesses, as well as strategies for improving workplace interactions to maximize both financial success and increase job satisfaction. Thanks for joining us, Denise. Thank you for having me. I appreciate it. So the subject of this episode is one my wife is actually very excited about. It's an icon of Hollywood's golden age, Audrey Hepburn. Hepburn rose to stardom in the romantic comedy Roman Holiday in 1953, alongside Gregory Peck, um, and he became a lifelong friend. And she was the first actress to win an Oscar, a Golden Globe, and a BAFTA for a single performance that year. And that same year, Hepburn won a Tony Award for Best Lead Actress in a Play for her, for her performance in On Nine. She went on to star in a number of successful films, such as Sabrina, in which Humphrey Bogart and William Holden compared for her affections, Funny Face, a musical in which she sang her own song parts, the drama The Nun Story, the romantic comedy Breakfast at Tiffany's, the thriller romance Sherrod, opposite Cary Grant, and the musical My Fair Lady. In 1967, she started the thriller Wait Until Dark, receiving Academy Award, Golden Globe, and BAFTA nominations. After that, she disappeared a little bit and only occasionally appeared in films, one being Robin and Marion in 1976 with Sean Connery. Her last recorded performances were in the 1990 documentary television series Gardens of the World with Audrey Hepburn. She's also one of only 16 people to win Academy, Emmy, Grammy, and Tony Awards, the much-desired EGOT for 30 Rock fans out there. Hepburn sadly passed in 1993 after a brief fight with a rare strain of abdominal and colon cancer. She was survived by two sons, one with first husband actor Mel Ferrer and the other with second husband Italian psychiatrist Andrea Dotti. Her estate left the contents of a storage locker just stuffed with Hollywood memorabilia to be split 50-50 between the two sons. But if only things were that simple, right? A fight immediately kicked off between the two stepbrothers over how to evenly distribute the contents of their mother's storage locker. This fight lasted 24 years. It simmered between the two for decades before becoming a legal issue finally in 2015, and ultimately the two allowed a judge to settle it for them in 2017. So now this case features a pair of items that we've covered before on this show quite a bit, namely how difficult it can be to define what even distribution means, such as in the Tom Petty case. And of course, that step family will often fight, which is basically every other episode of the show. 
However, we've largely tackled that second issue in terms of step-parents not getting along with their stepchildren. So today we're going to talk a little bit about sibling rivalry. What causes it, be it between full or step-siblings, and how advisors can attempt to plan around it. So Dr. Federer, with all that being said, let's start with the not-so-simple question of what are some of the most common causes of sibling rivalry? Okay, well that is a great question. Um, and in listening to Audrey Hepburn's story, I'm personally a fan of uh, the golden era of Hollywood. It's so sad to me what happened in that family, but it's pretty typical. And I would say the number one thing that I see that causes simply rivalry is the lack of honest conversations initiated by parents. You know, um, it's so important to actually have transparent communication in families, particularly families of wealth. Um, but often, the disputes that siblings have is really not, a, believe it or not, about the money, but it's about what things mean and about those. And if you think about that storage locker of memorabilia, it's what it meant to their mother and um, and feeling that sense of pain and loss because they didn't have that conversation about what she really wanted and what things meant. Um, so, so much of that could be mitigated if people could start early having difficult conversations about money, their legacy, what matters, um, and what, what they want to have happen um, when they're gone. Yeah, and it's important to note, like, before everyone rolls their eyes, that, oh, just communicate, that yeah. a lot of these things, when you're dealing with sort of uh, sentimental value, which is a lot of what we're talking about here, that's just not something you can properly plan for on paper or in a contract. That, that's something that has to be talked out over time because you just never know. And a lot of times these kids don't even know until they're right in it. You know, I have a great story of uh, one of the cases I worked with a family. This family was very wealthy, and the mom was trying ahead of time to start going through her things and share them with the three children that she had. And of all her antiques and all the valuable possessions, they all wanted to fight over these um, Flintstone glasses that they got at um, a gas station back in the 70s. They used to give it away when you had gas, you know, when you got gas, you'd get a glass. And every year at Christmas, after they finished putting the star in the tree, she'd break out the eggnog, eggnog and these glasses and they would all celebrate Christmas. That was the thing all three of the children wanted were those six glasses because it reminded them of their memories of growing up. So it goes to show you that there's, and she was shocked by the way, she had no idea the kids had played, their adult children had placed so much value, but it represented so much to them. And without conversation, you just don't know what's important to your children and how it's going to impact them and what it means to them. Yeah, I mean, it reminds me of the case of Robin Williams, which we kind of talked about uh, on, I think, the second episode of the show, actually, where, you know, of all his millions of dollars and all of his, you know, things, that they were, his family ended up sort of fighting a little bit over, like, his bicycle collection. <laughs> like it was just like this weird, because like, you know, they weren't fighting over the real money. It was just like this weird quirky no, thing that like, that was just to them was him. Exactly. It's what it means. And I think, I think it goes to, uh, to show that no matter how old you are, um, everybody uh, needs their parents' attention and love and conversation and relationships really matter. So these conversations are very difficult and depending on generationally, um, whether people are comfortable or not talking about money, talk, you know, sharing their stories. Um, I often think that financial advisors play such a potentially significant role in facilitating these conversations. And, and one of the ways to do it um, is to do what I call an ethical will, 
where you get your clients or I get my clients and families of wealth. To, and I just was discussing this today with a new client, starting off with just writing the story about your life and what things mean and what you want your legacy to be, what you want your relationship between your children to be, um, and then starting to share that story with your kids and having conversations about what things mean to them. Um, as I said, each, you know, if you've grown up with siblings, you know, everybody's perception is their reality. You know, what one sibling may have experienced in the same room, in the same house, with the same parents, gets experienced differently by another sibling. So having those open conversations is really important. So it's it allows people to have holiday dinner long after the parents are gone. Yeah, and I think the most important part about that idea is that you're giving some context to why you're having this difficult conversation. Like, I laugh about it because, um, you know, just by pure coincidence, my father-in-law is an estate planning attorney. Um, oh. And sort of the way his, my wife and her brother have basically already divvied all of their parents' stuff up because they literally sat down and were like, right. what do you want? Right. <laughs> and it was just like this hilariously direct conversation. You know what? But it's, there's it's something wonderful. Yeah, it's pretty wonderful, actually. It's a gift you give your kids. Um, and everything has a different meaning. You know, my mom passed away a year ago and um, she just wore a necklace every day. And I wanted it because it, she wore it every day. And so my sister and I had a long talk. One of the things we decided to do, not that there was a lot of jewelry, was to sort of share it and then give it to our kids. You know, just we just wanted the sentimental things. And we had long conversations about when she got certain things and what my dad gave her and what it might have meant. Regardless of whether we liked the actual piece or not, we really just had that conversation. So there's so many stories that parents can share um, with their kids, adult children and grandchildren. It's a gift that you give them by having that conversation. Yeah, and I'm glad you brought up this idea of these long conversations that you had because I think it's very important to realize that while it's, it's very hard to break this ice and, I mean, it can seem ghoulish depending on sort mm -hmm. of what your family's like, obviously not my wife's family, but, you know, some people are <laughs> less comfortable talking about that than others. Um, but the nice thing about it is that a lot of times once you've sort of like broken the ice and broken that seal with the first conversation, it becomes a self-perpetuating thing where, you know, you maybe you have to schedule the first one if the family's really reticent about it. But then a lot of the time they bring things up that they then will then go talk about on their own. And it starts a whole, because it brings up these emotions that they didn't even realize they were having. And it, it sort of kickstarts its own series of communications that the advisor no longer has to be dragging each one out. Right. Now, the other thing is that, you know, um, anyone who has brothers or sisters know that everybody has a different personality. Everybody approaches things differently. So the other thing when facilitating conversations, I try to help them shift from judging to learning. You know, where one uh, child may say, I don't want anything from mom and dad, you're, you're, thinks that their brother or sister could be spoiled or a sense of entitlement, really just sort of talking about what does money mean to them? What does their inheritance mean to them? What are the things, you know, what is important to them going forward and trying to learn about each other? Because depending at what stage the parents uh, pass away and where their kids are in their life, they may or may not be still connected. So this is an opportunity to, um, if there aren't, really painful, difficult old wounds and conflict that, you know, needs to be resolved. It's a great opportunity for everybody to strengthen their relationships uh, and get closer. Yeah. And especially it's important for advisors to realize that, uh, particularly if, if you're dealing with, with children who are in the sort of the judgmental zone, that a lot of times resolving these conflicts is going to first lead to a little conflict. And mm -hmm. then, but it's just going to be so much less if you do right. it now in a controlled environment when everyone's around than if you let it fester 
and leave it to just come up on its own after everyone's dead. Absolutely. So, I have, you know, excuse me, I didn't mean to interrupt you, but I've had myself uh, beg parents to have the conversation and they're afraid of the conflict. And so they say, well, they can fight over it when I'm gone, which is really an unkind, selfish thing to do to your children. That's a very common way that clients and, and sort of, you know, decedents, if I want to use my, you mm -hmm. know, put on my attorney hat, will, will think about these things because they want to avoid it now. They're like, oh, I trust my kids to figure it out. It's like, maybe they'll fight. Yeah. It's like, it's going to be such a bigger fight. They don't like comprehend. <laughs> That, what's, well, you that said, what could be a small fight with the three of you in the same room right, is going to be right. such a much bigger fight with the two of them and you dead. And then trying well, there's to like, two things. Right. And you said a couple of things that were so important. One, if by, by um, helping the, the parent, I'll just use that as an example, uh, do what I call the ethical will and put some context to why they're creating their estate plan the way they are and what means what to them and why they're doing certain things. Um, it's the first thing it helps their kids understand. And two, it needs to be a series of conversations because it will bring up emotion and pain. And I might get the first reaction. I might feel defensive if I hear, um, you know, uh, fair and equal are not the same things. And so as a parent, they may feel that certain children need certain things or grandchildren. And I think out of respect to everyone to have, there's ways to have these conversations separately first and then together perhaps and trying to explain it only makes me think of the show Succession, which I recently binge watched during uh, this uh, COVID. Um, you know, it's so convoluted if you don't have honest, open conversations. No, I love I love that you brought up Succession because as silly and sort of high drama as that show is, like a lot of that's like it's kind of in the same way that I, I like to think of this show. And that sort of as silly and high drama the stories we present are, like what's at the bottom of it is actually everyone goes through that. Everyone, it's real. It's Another really interesting example of that is if, if you've seen Knives Out, which is yes, sort of like comedy, cockamamie, dark comedy right. whodunit. Right. And that, as an estate planner watching that movie, I'm like, this is silly and wonderful, but also like, this is so informative if you just like pay attention to what's actually like, this is real if you look below the goofiness. It is real. And that, you know, and it, it again, I tell people, it doesn't matter how much money you have. Relationships are relationships. And Children always want their parents' approval, always, even from the grave. So if I feel that you didn't respect me and give me or you gave somebody more, I watch sibling rivalry um, in the families that I work with that are working in business together. You know, it's um, that jealousy that goes on is very real. Well, I'm glad that's, I think, we transfer that to the next part of the conversation, right? Is that up till now, we've kind of been talking about, I guess, for lack of a better term, sort of prophylactic approaches, right? Where you want right. to try to nip these things in the bud before they turn into a thing. Unfortunately, that's not possible all the time. Sometimes you get a client and it's already a thing. So right. what can you do then as an advisor to try to resolve these conflicts? Well, I think there's two types of conflicts. There's a simple conflict and there's a complicated conflict. And the difference is a simple conflict is sort of, uh, you understand the variables. Um, they're pretty, um, like I said, they're not complex. You sort of know what the issues are. There's not a long complicated history. It might, it's happening in the here and the now, either in the working setting or, um, you know, in the relationship between um, siblings. The more complicated kind of a conflict is um, when you have a long, long history. You know, mom always liked you best. It happens from the time we were eight and 10. We were always fighting. We never liked each other. Now we're adults and we still don't like each other. Um, for a whole list of personality differences and situational things. I think an advisor um, first needs to try to understand what are the issues and start off 
trying to figure out what are the things that you might want to talk about in a family meeting and try to, you want to set yourself up to win. And so try to not make it too complicated um, and try to make it a little more positive. And in your initial interviews, which I always recommend, if an advisor thinks you're going to put together a family meeting and try to facilitate that you interview everybody separately to find out what their issues are so you can be prepared and not caught off guard. And if they're a complicated history, then you might want to, at that point, bring in some kind of family business consultant um, who can help you with that conversation. Absolutely. And, you know, just like everyone, you know, every individual client in a family sort of has it, he brings their own baggage, right? They have their own you know, reason for the conflict. They also, a lot of them are going to have different ways, you know, preferred ways of resolving the conflict. And so Absolutely. how do you sort of reconcile the, the, the sort of various ways that well, people, you know, once you've identified the problem, now you have to figure out how they want you to fix it. <laughs> right. Well, you know, in my relationships with families of wealth and family businesses, I have long-term relationships where I've been, um, I'm on retainer um, and I'm helping them work through identified issues and problems. So uh, part of what makes my job a little easier and hopefully maybe advisors can do this as well if they're having depth, is I am developing a relationship with each family member and understanding them and hopefully getting um, their trust. So there are dynamics that go on. I think we had talked earlier about one of the articles I wrote, you know, if you have a very high intense, one child is sort of more the type A and very competing and they're only concerned about their own agenda and getting things done, you know, they might balance that with a, another sibling who avoids or just accommodates to sort of get by and not have conflict and doesn't want to start. And so you're trying to move them towards compromising and collaborating by helping them find a common goal. Or um, And that's why having parents alive can be really helpful because I've worked with families when they, it took me a long time, but they could finally see the pain. I worked with this one family, there were four siblings and it, the father died unexpectedly and we were working on succession planning in a very successful business. And long story short, it went into litigation where um, the three sisters were suing the one brother. And I was working with the attorney and the family, trying to help them uh, negotiate. We were one year of meetings and trying to compromise. And I could not get the siblings to get on the same page. So I finally got the mom, who was about 80 at the time and originally from Eastern Europe and sort of very overwhelmed what was going on in her family, to write an ethical will and to really tell her kids what that it meant to her if they could have a relationship, have Christmas together with their father. And she wrote this beautiful letter, which was hard for her, about their how they started the business in their garage and you know what their values were. Uh, she was so... Uh, uncomfortable doing this, she asked me to read it. So I read it at this meeting with the attorneys and all the kids, the adult children, and they were shocked. They had never, their mom, um, they'd never heard their mother discuss her feelings. Their father, who had died suddenly, never shared any of these stories. They settled within the week just by her being um, communicating in a powerful way what she really wanted out of all this. And, and her goal was just that they could have holiday dinners together and figure this out. So they were highly motivated because it meant them, you know, something to them to make her happy. And they were so happy to get her um, her feelings on the topic because she never, it was very difficult for her to communicate at that level. Yeah, and it's, it's, it's easy for us as advisors when we're sitting in one of these meetings to kind of forget because ostensibly we're staring at a group of adults, right? Even when a lot of the time mm -hmm. we're talking about children here, we're talking about 45-year-old right. children. Right. Um, <laughs> but so it's like you're looking at a group of adults, but like it's still parents and kids and, and kids still put their parents on pedestals and idolize them and have these, 
You know what I mean? There's Absolutely. still like a certain idealized version of that parent where like little things from them mean stuff and then preconceived notions of them being invincible. Like these things can still persist even once everyone is sort of into, into senior citizenship almost. You know what? You never, you know, I always say that every relationship is a power struggle, um, subtly or not so subtly. And there are three relationships that will never be equal. One is employer-employee, because they can fire you. One is teacher-student, they can fail you. And one is parent-child. And you will always be in a position with your parents, no matter how much you... I, I met with a man this morning who's a um, very wealthy uh, gentleman who's looking at his succession planning and next phase of his life. And his mom passed away when he was six. And his dad, uh, he grew up in England and went to boarding schools. And he hadn't spoken to his dad for years before he died. And today... That was the number one thing he wanted to talk about was his parents and that some of those unresolved feelings and all the money in the world hasn't really put that piece to rest in his life. Um, so yeah, I it, think sounds, it, it sounds so cliche, right? That's like, Oh my God, I have parent issues, but it's like, it's so easy for us to look at adults and think like, Oh my God, my parents screwed me up so bad when they were so perfect. But it's like, well, no, their parents screwed them up. So bad. They didn't have any idea what they were doing either. Like you know it's so what? hard for it's a lot so of kids to look at them as people who, who also don't have a clue. We all make mistakes, and so our parents made mistakes. We'll make mistakes parenting. Um, and I, I, I'm not, a, I'm not into being a victim. I used to tell people when I was a therapist, like, let's not be professional victims here. But I am into looking at your past if it helps you understand who you are today. And then the big so what? Where am I going? And how am I going to use that information? What's my vision going forward? And how can I get there? So I think. Uh, understand, you know, the gift you give your children if you're willing to have, and as an advisor. Um, you know, people are always looking for that trusted advisor. It's hard for people to trust. And if you can offer that something special where you're not afraid of conflict and you're willing to go into some messy conversations about your money and what it means to you, how you view money. You know, this guy was telling me today, he was from England, grew up very wealthy. His father didn't believe in giving him money, so he gave him $1,000 when he died. And he didn't even want to take it because the message of growing up is, I owe you nothing. Uh, it had nothing to do with how much money they have. They grow very aristocratically. And uh, so understanding how your family feels about money at an early age and talking about it is can really help families stay uh, connected or it can help them separate if you don't have those conversations. Yeah, and that's also just a really interesting conversation to have because I think you can talk to 15 different experts and get 15 different opinions on when's the right time to tell the kids about the money. Do you ever tell them? Um, it, it's like one of those questions in, in, in this industry that it seems like there's like just no answer to. Well, I think parents' biggest fear is if there's a lot of money, they won't, um, the children won't be motivated to work yeah, or have trust the values that they right? had. Right. But that starts early on, those values. I've watched really wealthy people still working, you know, because it's about the meaning it has in their life and it's about their values. It's not just about the dollars. So I believe those conversations happen really early on and you're a role model and it's how you live your life and what you show your kids, what you talk to your kids about. Um, it's not a, and it, yes, there are some unforeseen things that happen in families, but it's not an accident when you get um, adult children who work hard and have good values. It's usually because yeah, those kinds yeah, of things yeah. were talked about. So again, it's never too early to have these cons. And particularly if you have a lot of money, you can talk about stewardship, responsibility, philanthropy, giving back to the community. You know, if you are lucky enough to be born with money and be passing along money, that it's even more important to have that conversation. I think to not prepare your children um, because of your fears is unfortunate. 
Um, and again, a financial advisor, if they're confident enough, can have these kinds of conversations with their clients. Yeah, and it's also like important, just it's a matter of respect almost. Like kids, mm-hmm. no matter what you think about them, actual kids this time, not 45-year-old kids, although maybe 45-year-old kids too, are they're not stupid. So like they have eyes and ears. They know mm-hmm. when they go to their friend's birthday party that, oh, this house is different than my house. When we go on a trip, exactly. we take a, the, our plane as opposed to my, I went to my friend's, you know, on the trip with my yeah. friend's family and we flew coach. Like right. they're getting this information eventually. And yep. it's just up to you. It's your job where you can really mold that information and actually like help them process it and give it to them in a way that is controlled and helpful as opposed to just letting them stumble into it and notice it as they notice it. It's a very interesting point you make. And I can think of many, many examples. Um, you know, I grew up with a friend who um, is very wealthy. Was her, and I, and I kind of knew she was different because you went to her house and at that time she had a tennis court and a pool and boats. And so you sort of figured it out. And I, and you know, her family um, name on a lot of universities um, buildings and she uh, ran the family foundation. And I did ask her at one point, when did you figure out you were wealthy? You know, at what point? And she said, that's so interesting. I didn't realize I was wealthy until I went to college because I grew up in just, I had such good friends and we had such good family friends who didn't have her money. I didn't have, my family didn't. And it wasn't about that. She said, but when I went to college, that became, I started to realize, oh, I am really different than other people. Um, but I think, and, and it was hard for her to trust people trying to figure that out. So it doesn't do you any favors to not understand the situation you're in and the impact it has on your life to prepare you. Yeah, this college example is really wonderful because, again, it makes me think of, of my wife, who grew up upper middle class, not wealthy, unfortunately, right. and didn't hit the lot over there. <laughs> but um, she grew up upper middle class in Flint, Michigan. And okay. then when she went to the yeah. University of Michigan on her floor were a bunch of other upper middle class kids from New York City. And okay. So yeah, she... I went to Michigan. I had that same experience. <laughs> Go blue. Yeah. <laughs> and so, oh, I didn't even know that. See, that, that wonderful. So That's they, funny. She had this culture shock of being like, oh. These are very different people. (laughs) So that's funny that you said I grew up in Miami and I went to Michigan um, and I, uh, I'll give away my age, a lot of people from Florida didn't go to Michigan. And I met all these um, other people from the suburbs of Chicago and Detroit and New York. And I was in culture shock as well. (laughs) I was like, wow. Um, So yeah, I just think um, I hadn't been exposed to those values. Um, I have another, I have a, one family I worked with, their fifth generation uh, international company. Uh, their name is on the football stadium that I just recently saw a game. And I worked with the son, um, third generation son, who was really struggling. Um, his dad was the current CEO and of the third month wife of this guy. And he said to me, and this sounds so bizarre, but he said, you know, growing up, I flew out on the family plane. We have four homes around the world. I live this amazing life. And at the time I started working with him, uh, specifically, he was 30. He said, nobody told me that when I turned 21, it was all going to turn off. And I had to get a job and support myself. And he lived very meagerly. I mean, they had a um, distributions of their money, but the expectations were where you put that money. So it didn't really affect his life. Uh, his siblings all worked in the company and lived a much more luxurious lifestyle. Um, and he could not find his way. And he said so much frustration. He said, I just wasn't prepared. So they never talked about it, um, which I find fascinating. Um, and oh, yeah, that's the other side of that. That's the other side of that preparation coin. Like if you avoid that conversation yeah. for so long, try to not create a trust fund kid, you effectively create a lottery winner. And then, and then yeah. that's, that's just as bad. You know, they're, they're going to yeah. not know what to do with that money either. 
So right, it, it's, it's just it, all it, it's a very complicated conversation, but it it has to happen. And you take complex ideas and you break them down to simple steps. And it starts with trusting a family. It's which is hard, particularly you have families of wealth, to trust an outsider. I like to think of myself as an um, outside member of the family or outside member of the company and a financial advisor that is willing to learn these skills um, and really trying to understand these um, concepts and how to have these conversations. They'll be invaluable to a family uh, because, you know, you need somebody to guide, someone objective to guide these kinds of conversations. Yeah. So unfortunately, we've, we're running long here. This has been such an interesting conversation. We've gone off in so many uh, different directions that uh, we've lost track of time a little bit. But that's that's a wonderful problem to have. <laughs> um, but I would like to to wrap things up and, and to thank our guest, uh, Dr. Denise Federer, for just for being a fantastic guest. Thanks so much for coming on. Thank you so much for having me. I really appreciate it. This is great. And uh, for all our listeners, I'll see you, or I guess you'll hear me, on the next episode of Celebrity Estates: Wills of the Rich and Famous. Thank you for listening to the Celebrity Estates Wills of the Rich and Famous podcast. Click the subscribe button below to become notified when new episodes become available. The information covered and posted represents the views and opinions of the guests and does not necessarily represent the views or opinions of InformaWealthManagement.com. The content has been made available for informational and educational purposes only. The content is not intended to be a substitute for professional investing advice. Always seek the advice of your financial advisor or other qualified financial service provider with any questions you may have regarding your investment planning.